Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's roundtable. Looking back on the news of the week on this Friday morning, November 22nd, around 8.45 a.m., there were two blockbuster stories this week. In Atlanta, 10 Democratic candidates for president met for the fifth in a series of presidential debates. But what could have been a big night in Atlanta was completely overshadowed by what was happening in Washington where a whole passel of witnesses testified in the House impeachment inquiry against Donald Trump, all career diplomats, all members of the Trump administration, and all of them confirming the case made by Democrats that President Trump himself blocked military aid to Ukraine and blocked the White House visit by the president of Ukraine unless Ukraine agreed to investigate Joe Biden, Trump's potential 2020 Democratic rival. Does that mean that impeachment's a sure thing? Well, here to sort it out for all of us this week, three crack political reporters. Hunter Walker is the White House correspondent for Yahoo News. Hello, Hunter. Hey, how are you? All right. Always good to see you. Niall Standage, White House columnist for The Hill. Hello, Niall. Hey, Bill. And Jennifer Habercorn joins us from the Los Angeles Times, congressional correspondent who's been uh, in the impeachment hearing room. Hello, Jennifer. Hey, Bill. So uh, the public hearings are over. Did Democrats make their case? What do you think, Jen? You were there? I think they did. Um, They really were able to solidify. You know, we had kind of two um, parallel arguments. One, that the, um, the Trump administration held up a White House meeting in order to get these investigations. And they really solidified that one. I mean, Sondland in particular testified Wednesday that he that that was the quid pro quo. He knew about it. Everybody knew about it. Um, they were less able to solidify their argument that the military aid was being held up. I mean, Sondland was their best witness, and, only, and he only said that he presumed that that was being held held up. Um, so if Democrats came out of the hearing with one missing piece, it's probably that one. But I mean, Sondland confirmed the quid pro quo of the White House meeting and um, uh, pretty much every other witness who had a, 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 a had an argument to be made on that point confirmed it as well. So same question, uh, Niall, but um, before we get to you, uh, here is the famous statement by Mr. Sondland. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. Yeah, I mean, that was obviously a particularly striking moment. Overall, they make their case? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think that his testimony in particular was very damning for the White House. I think there were a number of instances uh, during the week, including uh, Fiona Hill, that were similarly damaging. She talked about there being um, a domestic political errand being run. I mean, that in itself is a pretty forceful uh, phrase. And, and, you know, a lot of the times these hearings 
while people like us watch them for hours every day, a lot of the time their importance lies in whether certain moments have a kind of virality pop to out. them and pop mm-hmm. out. And there were several of those, I think, all of which helped the Democrats. Yeah. What's your, what's your take, Hunter? You know, I I think the substance of what we've seen is pretty clear. I mean, you know, what one thing I, I like to specify for people, I mean, I think a lot of the question is whether Trump, you know, used a thing of value uh, that can be officially obtained to um, advance his personal interests. And and for a lot of people, I mean, as Jennifer was pointing out, the, the military assistance is not as clear, but the White House meeting seems to be dead to rights. Um, one thing that I've learned since covering the White House is just how much these optics matter in terms of foreign policy and and for a government particularly like Ukraine that's embroiled in um, a fight with a much larger rival like Russia, um, those optics and that meeting of having a photo with President Trump, I mean, we heard people talking about this with Kim Jong-un, that really, really, really matters. So, you know, I think it's very, very clear, but I think the ultimate question remains, you know, when this moves to the Senate, will the Republican majority... Um, vote to say they saw what we all see. <laughs> right. Um, I thought with uh, uh, Ambassador Sondland um, that the quid pro quo, right, of course, may, may have been the strongest statement, of course, because um, the Republicans spent two weeks saying there was none. The president's been saying it for the last couple of months. But his other strong statement was, don't think this was just Rudy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, here he is again. This email was sent to Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Perry, Chief of Staff Mulvaney. Everyone was in the loop. Everyone was in the loop. And yet, let's go in the same order, Jen. We're not going to hear from Mike Pompeo, Mick Mulvaney, um, the Ambassador Bolton. Ambassador Bolton, or the Vice President. Mm-hmm. Democrats just decided they weren't going to spend the time fighting in court to get them to testify. Uh, Can they do it without them? It makes it a lot more difficult. I mean, imagine if one of them were to testify or if we were able to see the emails that Sondland was citing. Um, I was struck by how much Sondland claimed to not remember. Um, He claimed to not remember conversations with the president. And I'm wondering if somewhere in the realm of his memory, way deep in the back, there is, you know, even more damning evidence of what the president said to him on some of these phone calls. And without that, it makes it does make the Democrats case more difficult. I think, as we've said, the White House meeting is pretty locked down. But um, if they had some of that testimony from those officials, I think it would be even clearer. It was a strategic decision, Niall, not to take the time to spend the time in court forcing them to testify, but going with what they had. Yeah, and I think there are a A gamble. Yeah, it is a gamble, but I think there are a number of different strands to it, one of which is that Democrats, I think, believe that the more swiftly they can bring this to a conclusion, the better for them politically. They don't necessarily want Mm -hmm. a testimony to become um, sort of dulled by familiarity or the sheer volume of it to begin overwhelming people. They know that Fox News and others will be hammering night after night about it being a witch hunter hoax or whatever. And um, more broadly, of course, there is the 2020 election to consider and Democratic presidential candidates there are not particularly eager 
um, for this to go way into 2020. And the same goes for congressional candidates, some of whom are fighting in moderate districts and, you know, have other issues that they want, want to highlight. So, Hunter, you probably know, have interviewed Bolton, but if this, it seems to me if there's any one of them who would break, it might be John Bolton. Yeah, I mean, he's he's had a very interesting relationship with the, with this White House. I mean, right. I, I covered it when he left, and you know, they were they were tarring him as a leaker and saying he basically had screaming policy disagreements with the president on Venezuela and Iran. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you know, you you see him not testifying here. So I I, I think he is. He said, little- he said that he would if they. If the court told him to, right? Yeah. So it's almost like he wanted to, but he wanted. Oh, yeah. He's not giving it up voluntarily. He's not going down easily. I mean, he's, he's, you know, (laughs) as ever half, half seeming like a Trump ally and half not. Um, But he is responsible for one of the most memorable quotes that um, has come up in this testimony where he allegedly said, you know, I won't be part of whatever drug deal you guys are cooking up when he was involved in one of these meetings on Ukraine. So so it would be really interesting. And he he called Rudy a... Take, uh, hand grenade. Uh, oh, hand grenade. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> but one more point we should add about Bolton. Just this morning, he tweeted. Uh, here we go. That he's glad to be back on Twitter after more than two months. For the backstory, stay tuned. Dot dot dot. Mm. Um, and we know that he has a book that he wants to sell. So there are there is some cynical speculation on Capitol Hill that he wants to testify in order to sell books. Um, it's clear and, that he wants to talk, but doesn't want to make it easy. Uh, and for the record, uh, Ambassador Bolton, you are invited at any time to appear <laughs> on the uh, Bill Press Pod. <laughs> Anywhere, anytime. Well, so now let's talk about how did the Republicans do? We all three said, in, to a certain degree at least, the Democrats made their case. Did the De- uh, Republicans blur it up enough? God knows they went in a, a, a lot of different directions trying to do so. <laughs> Sometimes undercut by the president himself. Jen? You know, I think Republicans um, felt like they did what they had to do, which was muddy the water and create a different narrative. I mean, you know, our politics right now is so bifurcated and Republicans just feel like they need some alternative story. And, you know, Trump supporters, if they haven't left the president by now, they doubt that anyone's going to do so. Um, and if that's the case, then they did what they needed to do. Of course, it's going to come down to independence, people who are in the middle. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I can't wait to see some polls next week to see if any of those folks moved. Was there any one thread that the Republicans came up with, you thought, that Niall, that was effective? Um, well, I didn't see one myself that I thought was effective, <laughs> honestly. And I thought that there were some instances. I mean, for, let's take the one. They use most often preps. Hey, they got the money. Mm-hmm. So what the hell? Yeah, I mean, stop bitching. They got the money. Well, they got the money after the whistleblower <laughs> said there's something shady going on with this money here. Right? Well, now you're getting back to the facts. I, I mean, there, there's that element of it that seemed uh, pretty spurious, honestly. But to Jen's point, I mean, I do think we need to realize to what you know the extent to which this country and and partisans on each side live in completely different universes now. And so I think that there was an attempt not necessarily to make a a particularly cogent or complex case on the Republican side, but to supply sound bites or, in Jim Jordan's case, to shout at people quite frequently and create (laughs) the sort of 
visuals or optics to use Hunter's word but yeah that, that seemed as if well, there's something kind of uh, there's some sort of malfeasance against the president here. I, I know Hunter uh, Jim Jordan was so excited I mean he had to take his jack, <laughs> jacket off. Someone's, no someone started to go fund me because oh. Jim Jordan has not worn a jacket at any point in these hearings and someone oh, so. started to go fund me to buy him one um when i last checked it had 149 dollars. people keep tweeting this thing at me you he, get... he's a long time uh, member of the no wearing a jacket club yeah. uh, and it, he, he does I, have some thesis as to why he doesn't wear a jacket right he feels that it's more sort of when he gets animated it's, it would inhibit him to wear his jacket <laughs> It's back from his wrestling days, maybe. Although I don't think he wants to talk about his wrestling. <laughs> about his, re could I ask you why isn't there more attention to the um, complaints that have been filed against Jim Jordan and Ohio State on this wrestling sex scandal? I mean, I mean, I hate to do a trans tangent, but you know, you, it you is you, relevant. You got to it at the beginning of this of this show. I think you know. The, one of the most blockbuster days of impeachment testimony happened as there was a Democratic debate. Meanwhile, you know, my colleague has written up a long story of all the majorly consequential things that have come out of the White House while we've all been focused on impeachment. This entire past, uh, let's say, let's go all the way back um, to really 2015. This entire past four years in American politics has been a frenetic avalanche of news, um, the likes of which I don't think any of us have ever seen. And, you know, how did, I, I would say there's a million stories that didn't get enough attention. I do think that, you know, among Democrats, um, I see whenever Jim Jordan is speaking and, uh, you know, reams of tweets um, referencing the fact that he seems to have um, turned a blind eye to um, molestation <laughs> on mm -hmm. his wrestling team. Um, but, you know, this gets back to, I think, my original point here, which is that I'm not sure anything we're seeing in this testimony matters because it's all about these individual members of Congress or, or senators and their districts. And I, I take the total cynical view that, you know, we do see growing support for impeachment, but unless enough senators see their states turning blue or purple that were previously red due to impeachment, we will not see them break ranks with the president. And I think that is even more true. I mean, Jim Jordan's district is gerrymandered to all hell. I mean, it looks like some kind of strange Rorschach, right? And and so, you know, sure, there may be wider public awareness that he has this dark scandal, but, but you know, in his weird, you know, looping slice of Ohio, they like him. Right. Uh, you so I've got a list of stories that I think have been missed for this, and I want to get to some of those. Before we do, just just to wrap up here, I hear you saying, "Yes, he will be impeached at this point, right as of today. Yes, he will be impeached. No, he will not be convicted." Is that how you see it playing out? I mean, yeah, I think the House vote is clear because it's right. a Democratic majority. I, I, you know, keep in mind with the Senate, the Republicans have a, a slim majority, but they need the supermajority to actually remove him here. Right. And I, I just don't see that happening. But I, but I do think that the facts are clear. And one thing that we're seeing that's really, really important is that the strategy from Trump and his allies keeps moving. And that's a sign to me that they're in trouble. Right. It started with look at the perfect call. That doesn't seem to be sticking. You know, now I'm seeing some Republicans go on TV and say his intent mattered and his right. intent was not to do this. Then we're seeing that argument. They got the aid. As you pointed out, that factually doesn't hold up. So I think the fact that we see they're 
defense keeps changing is evidence that this isn't working. But again, as, as Jen was saying, we are so polarized right now. And at the end of the day, they're making a base play. And I think that, you know, whether the facts back it up, it's going to work. So if you had to call Niall right now as to the outcome of this. Hmm. Impeached and not convicted. Impeached and not convicted. Agreed. Uh, you agree. Okay. Now, now, I guess this is the final point before we move on. Uh, yesterday, the president called the Republican senators down to the White House for lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on trial once. Uh, I would love to have been able to meet with the jury ahead of time <laughs> and have lunch and say, now let's get to know each other a little bit. And uh, here's what I'm going to say. What do you think of that? Or shall I use a different argument? I mean, really? This mm-hmm. is allowed? And he's been doing it for the last several weeks. He's been meeting with Republican senators, usually on Thursdays at lo- for lunch. And um, Dare we say jury tampering? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, you know, th- there is kind of this alternate scenario. You, you know, s- some senators love to say that they're going to be in the jury when they don't want to comment on what's happening. And they kind of try to rise above the politics. And then we have other moments like this where, you know, it's just blatant communication between the the um the accused and the jury yeah so um hunter you brought to the table uh, jim jordan who has been named in a lawsuit as one of the uh, he was assistant wrestling coach at osu not only spent i think we spent enough time on that already but just so, so people know the facts assistant wrestling coach several people now say at least two students and one referee that they this Dr. Strauss, who was molesting the numbers, according to Vice News, are up to 1,500 kids in 15 or so different varsity sports. And three people say they went to Jim Jordan, personally told him what was going on, and he shrugged it off and said, yeah, that's Strauss, basically. But nobody's talking about that's one story that might have gotten a lot more attention. Here's another one. Stephen Miller. Um <laughs> the Southern Poverty Law Center, whatever the name of it is, revealed some emails from Stephen Miller when he was working with Jeff Sessions where he was sending white supremacist articles to Breitbart saying, you guys ought to be printing these, man. This is good stuff. Got, what, one day of news at the most. What happened? Niall? Uh, Well... Why wouldn't the Hill have this on the front page every day? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'd need to look back at our coverage of it. It's a big uh, story. No, it was a big story. Uh, this is a tricky one. I mean, the thing is, is it a surprise to people that Stephen Miller has views that are not a million miles away from those of white nationalists? That's not a really surprise to anybody, right? So, and sending articles... I mean, I don't know. Is, should you be responsible for the ideological content of every well, link you send to someone? Well, I mean, well, that seems me, to me a dubious argument. Let me suggest that, not, not playing devil's advocate, mm. that this proves that there is a white supremacist as the top chief advisor to the president of the United States in the White House. Does, I, I, does it, though? Well, no, I, I'm going to come in between here. You know, okay. I think... Um, I think that I, I would disagree with what, what Niall is saying in that, uh, all due respect, this is, he was looking at sites, V-Dare and American Renaissance, which these emails show um, he was on a, a shorthand basis with. He called it Amren, right? And, and you know, look, I don't presume to know a man's heart, right? But what was going on here is that he had this 
young Breitbart editor who was set up with him with the understanding that he was almost to act as a de facto editor. So first off, like, let's be clear, this fully exposes Breitbart as a political operation and not even a conservative media outlet in any traditional sense. In his editing of her, he encouraged her to incorporate the material from these websites that he was clearly regularly reading and familiar with. Now, I get back to what I was saying. I, I, I'm i not going to presume to know. I can't say that, you know, what his personal uh, views are. But clearly it does show that one of the most influential policy think- thinkers in the website uh, in the is White reg- House. Uh, sorry, yes, in the White House is regularly consuming these white nationalist websites. And it is influencing their take on policy. And that's what like Congressman Al Green, who I spoke with this week, and he's, you know, tried to impeach President Trump for bigotry, essentially. His case is that there has been a harmful infusion of bigotry into White House policy. And these emails were a pretty, uh, you know, strong bit of evidence for that. So I want to ask you about another story, Jen, in the interest of time. But could we all agree that this is something that deserves more attention and would have gotten more attention were it not for impeachment. Oh, sure. And just the way the news cycle is moving right now, it's, it's to, to Hunter's point. It isn't insane. We can't really keep up with it. Let yeah. me ask you uh, about another one, which is that the president um, told the Pentagon, I don't care what you think, I'm going to pardon three members of the military who've been convicted by military courts, including two who were convicted of murder. Mm-hmm. And the president said, I don't care. These are good Americans. I'm going to let them go. Boom. You're lucky if you heard about it at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would argue that the House is trying to impeach the president. And that is a story that is going to dominate no matter what else is going on in the world. Um, and it, it's it's almost hard to argue against that. Um, but to your point, yeah, these are important stories and they should be getting out. And it's it's hard for us as you know professional news consumers and producers to keep up with that. Uh, and one other, just to throw another one on the table that <laughs> might get a little more attention. Um, there is a political leader who is uh, accusing his opponents of conducting a witch hunt and demanding that there be an investigation of the people who raised these charges. Uh, it's not Donald Trump. It's his buddy, Bibi Netanyahu. <laughs> indicted uh, for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Who wants to jump in on that? You know, I've been to Israel recently. I have family in Israel, and I have enough trouble keeping up with our (laughs) politics. I I really don't presume to be remotely expert on that. But, you know, Bibi has had... um, a couple corruption scandals. This is not the first, so it wasn't totally out of left field. I think the thing that's really interesting is, you know, this is a parliamentary system. BB just narrowly lost an election and the opposition was given a chance to form a government. About a day before this case came down, um, Benny Gantz, who, who, you know, could have formed a government, said, you know what, I don't have yeah. the majority, I can't do it, which I think means there'll be up to a third election over there. But I saw a lot of people saying, wow, like if only these charges had been revealed a day before, I think it would have been a lot easier for the opposition to, to you know, unify a bit over there. Right. Uh, we didn't even get to 2020 yet with all these other <laughs> stories here. So let's take a, a quick break on today's uh, roundtable with uh, Jen Habercorn and Niall Stanage and Hunter Walker. As we take a break from our roundtable today, here's a a special message and maybe a shameless plug for this holiday season 
feeling cold weather coming on, wanting to get a head start on your holiday shopping, two good reasons to take a look at those beautiful handwoven scarves by my wife, Carol. Each scarf is handwoven. Each one's a work of art made of rayon chenille or bamboo, and they come in all kinds of colors, designs, and patterns. Believe me, there's no better gift for yourself or someone you love. Now, here's all you need to do. Check out Carol's own website, carolpressscarves.com, or follow the link to Carol Press Scarves from my own website, billpresspods.com. Have the happiest of holidays for yourself or someone you love with an original hand-woven Carol Press scarf. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with our roundtable here. Jennifer Habercorn with the LA Times, Hunter Walker, Yahoo News, and Niall Stanage with The Hill. Um, so Niall and I were together in Atlanta for the uh, 2020 debate. Uh, there was, for the rest of you, I'm sure, watched the highlights, or if you're really long-suffering, you watched all two hours and 20 minutes of it. Um, generally, what was the impact? Any big winners? Did it change uh, anything? Uh, Niall, you were there. Why don't you start? Yeah, I don't think it particularly changed the trajectory of the race. I think a lot of people, including me, were expecting – Pete Buttigieg to be much more in people's crosshairs to get much more strong attacks than he actually received. By the way, including the Pete Buttigieg people, I talked to one of his top advisors after the debate, and they said, whoa, we came in expecting to be bombed and nothing happened. Right, exactly. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, not at all. I mean, the first half of the debate, the most pointed 
comment, I think, directed at Mayor Buttigieg was from Andrea Mitchell rather than from any of his rivals um, on the stage. <laughs> so in that sense, it didn't uh, alter the trajectory. I assume Buttigieg's people are happy about that, given that he's been rising so rapidly and sharply in the polls in Iowa and New Hampshire. He still has a major problem with black voters, and that would appear to uh, be a serious issue in terms of his overall hopes. Um, but no, I didn't see anything. I, I thought, for example, Kamala Harris had a pretty good night, but does that matter at this point? I mean, Kamala Harris has drifted downwards in the polls over a period of months, and, and I suspect the Democratic electorate just isn't buying what she's selling. Uh, and Cory Booker, uh, Hunter, whom you know well, you've profiled, um, he, he made an impassioned plea at the end saying, I'm not going to be here next time unless you help me out. I mean, he's... Yeah, he... he and he had a good night. He too. had a good night. And and his campaign said they had a record flow of donations after huh. the debate. I think he now is going to be on the next stage, if I'm correct. Um, if not, it looks like he's on a good trajectory. But, you know, a problem he has is we've seen this with a couple debates now where the verdict afterwards was, wow, Cory Booker did well. The pundits and the focus groups are all saying he won. His campaign declared victory after this week's debate. And yet we've never seen it move the needle for him. So, you know, that I think is one of the more interesting subplots of this debate. You have this guy who, you know, has been declared winner in a lot of quarters and, and it just doesn't seem to be helping him gain traction with voters. Mm -hmm. uh, anybody strike, strike you particularly, Jen? Um, you know, the one of the moments that stood out to me was um, the, vice, the former vice president <laughs> declaring that um, there was only one black female senator mm -hmm. um, when the second one, Kamala Harris, was sitting on the stage. And, you know, it's comments like that that it, it makes it, you know, just seem totally outside the realm of possibility that he's, you know, in the top of the polls um, with comments like that. And um, it, it really just plays into this narrative that he's not as bright as he once was. And yet, as you say, he's in the national polls, at least, he remains at the top. And I ask a lot of people about that after the debate, and everybody kind of shrugs and says, that's Joe. Yeah, yeah. Right? And there were, uh, there was that one, and there was one other gaffe, I forget. There, I think it was probably his uh, remedy for domestic violence. Oh, punch, 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 punch. Punch, punch, punch. Yes, out, right. Which was not a prudent choice of words. No, it was grating. And you could see that particularly Kamala Harris if not alongside of him, right very close. Well, saying, yeah, don't say that. Don't use that word. I, I think that, you know, it's important to put a couple qualifiers on the polls. Um, you know, we essentially talk about um, two sets of polls here, the the key early state polls and then the national polls. So I, I understand no matter what, why Joe Biden would be leading national polls, because essentially that's a referendum on name recognition at this mm -hmm. point. Um, his numbers in the early states, as we've seen, you know, Pete Buttigieg start to emerge do not seem to be as good. He's basically hanging on um, via support in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. and, and I've spent a lot of time in that state. And I think, you know, part of the narrative that Pete Buttigieg doesn't have support among black voters is also coming out of South Carolina. Yes. And I think that it's really important. I mean, you know, one of my pet peeves, and I say this as a, as a lifelong New Yorker, is that Iowa and New Hampshire have this disproportionate early role in the race, both of which are over 90% white. Um, you really don't get diverse groups of voters come in until Nevada and then South Carolina. Because of that, when we talk about black voters at this phase in the primary, we are really mostly talking about South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's necessarily right to put them in as a stand-in for the community at large. This is a conservative 
Christian electorate, uh, relatively, even in the Democratic primary. Um, right. You know, I was this notion right. has solidified a bit that, um, you know, they must be homophobic and that's why they're not adopting Pete Buttigieg. And, you know, I was looking at it the other night. I mean, Chicago elected Lori Lightfoot, a black gay mayor, mm-hmm. and she won every single ward in a heavily diverse city. So, you know, I, I, I think these poll numbers are a little complicated. But one, one thing going on with Joe, and it was a big story we saw this week, was this long profile looking at his history of stuttering. Mm-hmm. And, and I did yeah. not know this about him, but he is a stutterer. And, mm-hmm. and it really made me look at his gaffes, uh, supposed gaffes, a different way. Because mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is a man who, you know, learned these mechanisms to speak um, and, you know, has mentored young stutterers. But at the same time, I found myself sitting there thinking of a story I wrote, which is really the only time I've written about a Biden, quote unquote, gaff. And it was when he was in Dover, Delaware, and he accidentally said he was running for president. And And I guess my question with that one is like, as a reporter, do you ignore that statement? Because he probably yeah. stuttered. It was objectively newsworthy. Mm-hmm. His, as Jen was pointing out, the erasure of Kamala Harris, that's newsworthy. Mm-hmm. So he may have an excuse. It may not be mental acuity, but it's important. Mm-hmm. Okay. And hanging over this debate was the possibility that there may be other people jumping in. <laughs> uh, I read somewhere this morning, I believe, that Deval Patrick canceled a campaign event because two people showed up. Um. But he's already in. Uh, okay, Mr. New Yorker. <laughs> Is Bloomberg getting in? Well, Bloomberg filed his paperwork. He, he filed paperwork um, to run as a Democrat. Yes. Um, you know, I've talked to his campaign a little bit. Their rationale is basically that he can do this $100 million ad buy. Um, and he's not going to be on the ballot in New Hampshire. Um, and they think that they can sort of come in later and mop it up by just doing mm-hmm. a, a blitz on the airwaves or, or digitally. Um, I just can't help but think that I get incredible deja vu when I see a New York mayor with some national profile <laughs> say, I don't have to worry about the early season. Rudy Giuliani and yeah. the Florida strategy. And, and it and didn't it didn't work out well then. I don't know. I mean, I do know who's managed to sell it to Bloomberg this time. Hi, Howard Wolfson. I think you might be going <laughs> Now, anybody uh, else? Uh, no, and uh, not in my opinion. I mean, I, mean I, I think that the whole uh, premise of these late entering candidates is flawed, actually. I don't think that there is some uh, broad appetite in the Democratic Party for someone who has not got into the race yet, with the exception of the fantasy candidacy of Michelle Obama, who oh, clearly is yeah. not going to run. No, she's not going to run. But, I mean, that's that's the only person who would have a kind of galvanizing, electrifying power on the Democratic Party as a whole. Uh, Excuse and, me, and Niall, are, are you denigrating Oprah? <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, if you don't believe that about Michelle Obama, read her book. It's pretty clear. She wants nothing to do with electoral politics or something. Um, Jen, the last person that hasn't been named yet, but I thought had a good night again, is Amy Klobuchar. She may be the best debater on stage. Yeah, but I mean, she doesn't seem to have the support to keep her there too much longer. No, no. As you said about Cory Booker, not moving the needle, no matter how well she seems to do on stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great conversation, covered a lot of territory. Uh, And we always ask you to, uh, there has to be some story during the week that you particularly that particularly struck you, uh, Jen, I'll start. Well, I was um, ensconced uh, in the impeachment hearings for uh, <laughs> most of the week. Um, All right, we'll excuse you. For- well, no, 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 I, I do have a story that, that broke through to me at least. Um, Cheryl Stolberg at the New York Times wrote a really interesting profile on Fiona Hill, who was one of the 
um, you know, at least really captured the interest of the left and, um, you know, I mean, everyone's interest. She was a very interesting witness. Um, but Cheryl Stolberg recounted this tale of Fiona Hill when she was 11. Um, some guy was uh, lit her pigtails on fire and she just snuffed it out and went back to her test. And if that isn't 11 Tough year old's toughness, wow. um, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> Whoa, that really is. Uh, Niall? Well, my favorite personal story of the week was that after I came back to my hotel after the uh, debate, Rosario Dawson was in the lobby. And so, oh, guys, uh, oh. so that was a very uh, uh, favorite story. But apart from that, um, my, my colleague. Just stop right there. I mean, <laughs> Rosario. That is Cory Booker's girlfriend. I was just going to say it for yeah. everyone to know. Right. Exactly. He was there too, but like, yeah, US. <laughs> Rosario Dawson. Um, but my colleague, Olivia Beavers, who we all think uh, the world of, had a moment of viral uh, fame this week. She was behind uh, Kurt Volker, uh, sitting, sitting behind Kurt Volker oh, in his testimony, yes. and was suffering from a very heavy cold. So her <laughs> sniffling and tissue use became uh, quite a subject of social media comment to the point that she actually ended up on Anderson Cooper's CNN show uh, that evening, I believe. But uh, uh, perhaps in deference to her health and per- potential um, infectiousness, she was on Skype to Anderson Cooper. They didn't bring her into the studio to sneeze. Uh, but I'm glad to I, say that Olivia now appears for you. I must say, I enjoyed watching uh, friends of ours. I didn't see you, but because the, the reporter's table was right in back of the witnesses, and so you could see different friends on different days uh, popping I up. I always love watching the people who are behind yes, and yes. around in these yeah, moments. Right. It's, it's super funny, and you can always catch these unintentionally hilarious moments. Do you have a favorite story to share with us? So I, I sort of uh, spoiled my pick. I think oh. that Atlantic profile of Joe Biden and his history of stuttering oh, yeah. is, is just mm-hmm. really something worth was, reading and thinking was. about. Um, on a funny note, I think my favorite story uh-huh. of the okay. past week was the Eric Swalwell fart gate. Oh. <laughs> and, and this was this thing where you had Eric Swalwell appearing on an MSNBC with Chris Matthews. All of a sudden, someone let it rip in the middle of his interview. He seemed to pause but he insists it wasn't him. And credit must go to, I think, someone who's been on the air with both you and I, uh, BuzzFeed's Addie Baird. Yes. Who, who immediately messaged <laughs> right. Eric Swalwell and said, was it you? He insists it wasn't, but I must go with the oldest bit of political wisdom I know. <laughs> them who smelt it, uh, them who denied it, supplied it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I would I would find Chris Chris Matthews guilty easily. Pass well, my the torch. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite story of the week. My, my, it's a very sad story for us in Washington, and that is that the baby shark is gone. Yes, baby panda. Baby panda. No, well, the baby panda is gone, but so is the baby shark. Gerardo Gerardo Para has left oh. the Nationals. So the whole baby shark thing. And if you haven't been to a Nats game. Uh, with 40,000 people singing the baby shark song and clapping your hands like this. you don't, I mean, it was the spirit became the real spirit of the Nats. Uh, he was picked up by the Nats, I forget from where he, where, where he came from, and really sparked the team and became, you know, the energy, the momentum, the whole spirit of the team. And he signed with some Japanese ball club. He's going to play professional, I mean, baseball in Japan for $2 million a year. Um, and I also saw that then he is, there are 12 more free agents from the Nats now who are out there up for grabs, including Strasburg and Anthony Rendon. 
So, you know, uh, we may be uh, thinking back to uh, there is no joy in Mudville <laughs> at winning the World Series and then losing all of our best people, particularly the baby shark. We, we lost the, the but baby, baby panda, panda, panda in yes. China. Yes, I guess the Nats lost this guy to Japan. To, to, to I, Japan. I don't I'm a Yankees fan, but I think um, you know President Trump would say that Asia, they're just killing us. <laughs> we don't keep our players. We don't keep our pandas anymore. I'm excited to hear the Japanese version of Baby Shark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is. I, I just checked. It's, it's out there in almost every language. Oh, so okay. it's already it's out there. Uh, hey guys, thanks so much. That's a wrap for this week's roundtable. Uh, no, it's not. I have a quick little parting shot here. I'm sorry. Right, forget. Um, if you uh, uh, stick with me for a second here, and I always uh, mention my parting shot or my comments and not necessarily those of the members of the panel, but I think we saw something very rare in Washington this week, and I believe it's worth taking a moment out to recognize. Often we think of Washington as the capital of cowardice, and indeed most of the time it is filled with members of Congress, especially, who are afraid of their own shadow, afraid to take a stand without first taking a poll and never, ever brave enough to defy the dictates of their own political party, John McCain being a rare exception. But this week we saw just the opposite, not cowardice, but pure, raw courage on display in the person of 10 brave Americans who testified in the House impeachment inquiry. They are all career servants, civil servants. They were all members of the Trump administration. Several of them still are. They were all ordered by the White House not to testify, but they still did so. Why? Not because they don't like Donald Trump, as Republicans tried to argue, but because they saw something they believed was wrong, something they felt was harmful to our national security, and having taken an oath to defend the Constitution, not the president, they believed they had an obligation to tell the truth. It was the classic case of see something, say something. As simple as that, yet how rare, how remarkable, how refreshing, and how American. And that's a wrap for this week's roundtable. Thank you, Jennifer Hapcorn. Thank you, Nell Sanders. Thank you, Hunter Walker. Thanks all for coming. And thank you all for joining us. Let me remind you again how important it is to subscribe to the Bill Press Pod if you haven't already done so. It's easy and it's free. Just go to wherever you go for your favorite podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or TuneIn. Search for the Bill Press Pod and voila, click on subscribe. And while you're at it, give us a big fat five-star review as well. One more thing, to receive advance notice of all upcoming podcasts, be sure to follow me on Twitter at BPPod. That way you won't miss any podcast, including our next one. And our next one is an exclusive interview with former White House counsel Greg Craig about how he thinks this White House is handling the impeachment inquiry. Meanwhile, thanks again for listening. Stay strong, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod with Greg Craig.